I want to invite you to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. If you're a guest here today, we have been in a series called Unshakable. This is the ninth lesson, and our goal in this uh, whole series has been to help ground us, help us be established in our faith. <clears throat> We've talked about many different subjects. Today, we're going to talk about the church. The uh, title of the message is Jesus and His Bride, and then the subtitle is The Church. The Church. There's some things we need to understand. There's some things we need to know. Uh, if you are... Um, uh, like I am, obviously you've been uh, intrigued by all that's been happening with the uh, presidential election and debates, and there's been no shortage of uh, material for social media uh, through all of it. This past week, my wife read to me a tweet that she had received. It said, I know we say, come Lord Jesus, a lot, but this time we really mean it. I appreciate that song on the Midnight Cry. We're going to talk about that a little bit in the course of the message here this morning. And uh, before we do that, let me do this with you. Let me read to you a, a scripture out of Matthew 16, if you'll look there. Matthew 16 and verse number 18. And then I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer. And as we approach this message today, I, uh, I shared with the church this morning in the first service, and I'll share with you. Uh, I just, I felt like this morning, and I, I still feel this way, at the beginning of this service, like David. We just talked about David on Wednesday night going out into the valley of Elah to face uh, Goliath. And, and, you know, he had no idea that morning, that day, would hold for him what it held. And I just believe some of us today have walked into this church not knowing what awaits us. And I cannot help but feel in my heart and believe that this is a message that God has for us that we need to seek and pray for revival. And I'm talking about true Holy Spirit revival. And I'm talking about individuals because what happens in the church has to start with individuals. As we will read in just a moment or study in just a moment, the church is the people, not the building. We are the church. And if revival is going to take place in our church, it must start in us. It must start in us. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. Many of you are familiar with this text. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, while it is not my sermon this morning to exposit that text, I will point out to you that there are at least three things that come to mind very quickly before I share that time of prayer with you that I want to bring to your attention. First of all, it's the Lord's church. He said, my church. Next of all, I think we need to understand he wants it to grow. He said, I will build. I will build my church, he said. And then the third thing about that verse I want to point out to you just in the way of introduction is we're, we're not going to build a church without some opposition. He said the gates of hell are not going to prevail against us. That means if you strive to do what God wants us to do, you're going to run into some warfare. It's not going to be an easy thing. The devil's just not going to step aside and let you do it. It's going to be difficult. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and we are so very grateful. We are grateful for what our ears have heard and what our hearts have felt today. And God, we ask, we ask you to do what only you can do. And that is, Lord, guide us into all truth. 
We pray for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. And God, I pray at the beginning of this service, Lord, I'm asking you, bring revival. Revival to our hearts, revival to this church, God. We thank you for it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's no question that the church today, and and by the way, the word ecclesia is used in this text, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, so go ahead and turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to talk to you more about that. The word ecclesia literally means, it's a Greek word by the way, and it means a called out assembly. When we talk about the spiritual entity of the church, there's a bit of an addition onto that uh, definition, and that is it's a called out assembly of saved, baptized believers. You could have an assembly of people known as an ecclesia, but when the church gathers, when God's people gather, it's a called out assembly of saved, baptized believers. Now you cannot have a universal church at this particular time. Think about it for a moment. Ecclesia, church, it means an assembly. Well, we're not assembled with all the other believers in the world, are we? And so the church by nature is a local church. Now sometimes, and in the course of this message, we will, we will do this. We will uh, refer to characteristics of, of the modern day churches, and we might use the phrase church. We might say the church today tends to be this way. Now when we do that, it's a little bit like when we studied before the seven churches of Revelation. Do you remember that study? Many of you were with us for that. And there are seven churches... The Bible does not say that John wrote to the church at seven locations. It says he wrote to the seven churches. Each of those churches had certain dominant characteristics that tended to flow through the cultural tide of the time or represent an era of time. Example, the church of Laodicea. Remember, they were lukewarm. Do you remember that? Nod at me. Don't nod off, just nod at me. All right. And you remember that. Now, what that meant was that particular church uh, had a characteristic of a lukewarmness, an apathy, a complacency that would be consistent with many churches in the latter times. We believe we're in that right now. By, de- uh, uh, by definition of the latter days, uh, we're in it right now. And so many churches. Now, let me say this. Our church doesn't have to fit into that, by the way. Can I get an amen? You don't have to be a Laodicean church. We're actually told not to be one, and, and we can look at them and, and gain uh, information about what not to do. But uh, before I read to you Ephesians chapter 5, let me give you this passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 is where I'll begin reading. Hebrews 10 verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let me pause a moment there. What it's saying is this, what we need to do is consider that we need, as a church, we need to gather together and we need to encourage one another to, uh, to good works. And that's what the church does. We'll talk more about that. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but, but think about it. Is it not true that the church today tends to be uh, fading from the importance on our lists uh, throughout the culture, that more and more people develop and have the spirit and attitude of that it's really not important? As a matter of fact, here's what you're going to find. As you meet people on the streets and you talk to them, you're going to find people who say to you things like this. Well, I love God. I just have no need for organized religion. 
They don't see any purpose in the church. And the Bible tells us we're not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves. In the day and age that you and I live in, and we talked about this before, but let me clarify, oftentimes what we do is we replace church with other things on our list. The busier we get, the more it seems we replace the spiritual things in our life because we don't have time for it. And the Bible says do just the opposite. The closer you think that Jesus is in coming, the more you ought to assemble yourselves together. That's what the Bible says. Now the definition of church is not the people. I'm sorry, it's not the building. It is the people. Ecclesia, the people, not a building. Now, nowhere in the Bible will you find, listen carefully to this, nowhere in the Bible will you find that it says, and they went to church. It's because you are the church. Amen? Amen? And the church doesn't exist without you. You are the church. You make up the church. You may have went and joined with the rest of the church, but the church is not the building. It is the people, the people of God. Ephesians chapter 5, I mentioned that to you earlier. Let me take a moment and talk to you about this text. In this text, and this, this is a uh, passage of scripture that we often refer to when we're doing any kind of counseling, premarital counseling or marriage counseling, or if you're struggling with just understanding what the Bible teaches about the husband and the wife, this is a great chapter, obviously, to go to. But our intent this morning is not to talk about husband and wife as much as it is to see the illustration that is used concerning Jesus and his church. So I pick up with you in verse 25. If you look at Ephesians 5 and verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, now let's, let's understand something. Jesus loves the church. Amen? Now, now maybe you're one of those and you're, you're in here today and I'm glad you're in church. Or maybe you're listening by way of internet. But, but the truth is this. Uh, we need to stop and ask ourselves, do we think of the church the way Jesus thinks of the church? Are we as passionate about the church as he is about his church. It would do us well as we mature in our faith to develop the loves and the hates of Jesus. Does that make sense? Love the things he loves and dislike the things that he dislikes. We would do well with that. So I ask you again, what do you think of this thing we call the church? The church. And so the Bible tells us that uh, uh, he loved it and gave himself for it. Verse 26, read on with me. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and, or she should be holy and without blemish. Now look at verse 32. Skip down there with me. Verse 32. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, if you have a study sheet, and most of you probably do if you received a bulletin, I appreciate so much uh, those who put those in there for you. And uh, let me give you the first point. If you want to write it down, you can fill in the blanks. I want to talk to you about our relationship in Christ. Our relationship in Christ. I'm going to give you three terms, okay? Two of these are found directly in the Scripture, and the other is a concept that is there, although the term does not appear. Let me give them to you, okay? We're going to talk about the, uh, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and what we're going to call a believer's community. So let me back up just a moment with you. And here we read 
a moment ago that in Ephesians, the Bible says, I, I show you a mystery. This is a mystery. The relationship between Christ and his church, this is a mystery. If you go back in the book of Ephesians to the third chapter, you'll find that Paul mentions this same word. He uses the word mystery again. And in that text, he clarifies it's a mystery to him how that God reaches out to the Gentiles with the gospel. This whole concept of God reaching the world through this group known as the church. But in Romans chapter 11, we're taught something. So I want you to follow along with me just a moment. In Romans chapter 11, we're taught that there is an olive tree, Paul said. And that olive tree actually represents uh, Israel. But something happens. There's no fruit from them. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Can I get an amen? So what did God do? He broke off the branches and he grafted in a new branch. And in Romans chapter 11, that's what he says. I've grafted you in. That's the church. That's a fulfillment of what Hosea the prophet said when he said, God is going to do this. Now follow me. God said, I'm going to make a people out of a people who were no people. And this is a mystery. The church. It's a wonderful thing that God has done. It's a wonderful thing. He's made us His body, His bride. But, but what exactly does all that mean? And, and what does that do for us? And, and where exactly are we in all of this? Well, I, I need you to understand that, that to say that you love Jesus but you don't like the church is to say you love Jesus but you don't care for what He died for. You don't care for what He instituted. You don't care for His bride. Are you following me? This is a serious thing that we need to stop and look at. We are the bride of Christ. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 reads this way. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. With his own blood. We find in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is talking about the relationship of the church and Jesus. And he uses these words. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you. And betrothal in the Bible days was as serious as the wedding commitment is. It's not like engagement. Don't think that. It's much more of a commitment. He said, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the church is the bride of Christ. And that's very important that we understand. It's a relationship that we're in with him. And then when we think of the body of Christ is another term that's used for the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, this is the analogy that Paul talks about. And he describes a human body and all of the parts of the human body and how they work together. Now, is this consistent with being the bride of Christ, someone might ask? And actually it is. You remember that the scriptures teach that when people get married, that the man leaves his father and mother, cleaves unto his wife, and the two become one. Become one. So the body of Christ is consistent with the definition or what we call the term we use, the bride of Christ. And as the body of Christ, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18, but now God has set the members, every one of them, in the body just as he pleased. I was speaking yesterday with a man, a guy came to me and he said, he said, Pastor, he said, I really need you to pray for me. 
He said, I'm really upset with what's happening at his church. He was describing, he doesn't go here, and he was describing his church, and he said, but, he said, God has not told me to leave there. And I said, that's exactly what you need to be listening for, is what God has to say, not what everybody else has to say. Why? Because what is important is we're able to say God has has set us there. You agree? I must have missed something. What did I say? You guys are just awesome. You know that? It's the best tech crew in the world back there. I've been waiting on that for 34 years. Woo! All right. And. So the body of Christ, very important. So he has set the members. Now, if you're here today and you're looking for a church home, let me say something to you, okay? Uh, I don't know that you're going to find any church better than this anywhere. I'll just be honest with you. But we're not a perfect church. And you don't have the perfect pastor. You don't... You don't have to be too enthusiastic about that one, okay? <laughs> but, the, but the truth is, we're not. And, and, and we need not even pretend that we are. But here's the most important thing you need to understand. We are in a consumer world. We, we, we are, are in consumer shopping. People are shopping for churches like you look for various things at the store. And if you don't like this, you're looking for this or whatever. The most important thing you can do is look for the place that God wants you. Now, we'd love to have you here, but I'm going to make this very clear. We don't want you here if God doesn't want you here. Now, if God leads you here, we're going to love you, and we're going to believe God set you here. But it's important that we understand that God sets the members, every one of them, in the body. And having said that, we, we know our relationship to him. Now, let me talk about this phrase that I've, I've used with you, I've given you in your notes, and that is a believer's community, because that's what a church is. It's a community of believers. It's made up of people who have been saved and baptized. You say, preacher, why do you keep mentioning baptism? Well, that's the example in the Bible. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They were not added until the baptism took place. Did you understand that? Now, people are saved when they trust Jesus as their Savior. They become born again. And you're part of the family of God. But to be part of the fellowship known as the church, you have to go through also the obedience of baptism. That is the door of the church. So if you've not made that decision yet, you need to make that decision. Verse 46 tells us this, same chapter, Acts chapter 2. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church, the ecclesia, daily those who were being saved. So God is in charge of that. And we need to be sensitive and understand that it's His church, not our church. Will you say that with me? His church, not our church. And we're a part of it, and we belong to Him. And that's very important that we understand. All right, now let me move on into the reputation uh, with Christ. Our reputation with Christ is the second point I'd like to make with you. 
So what exactly are the opinions about church today? We've mentioned some of them. And by the way, it is not uncommon if you are out talking with people today, especially among young adults, you will meet people who have yet to enter church for the first time. That's true. And we have people in our church, it wasn't very long ago, someone brought me someone and introduced them to me and said, this person has never been in church before. Now that may shock some of you who grew up in church and you were in the nursery less than a week old. But the truth is, we have a whole generation of people who see no need for the church whatsoever. And indeed, they do say things like, I love Jesus, I just don't like Christians. It's true. I love God, I just want no part of organized religion. And this is what's happening. Believe it or not, some of it's our fault. Not, not ours particularly as a local church, but churches over the years. We have, we have portrayed ourselves in such a way, either we've set expectations on people that are unrealistic or we've lived uh, hypocritical lives. And they've seen it and they've noted it. And let's quit giving them excuses for not coming to church. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite uh, preachers in modern day times, made this statement, we are drifting toward a religion which consciously or unconsciously has its eye on humanity rather than on deity. J.I. Packer made this statement. He said, the Bible belt in America is a thousand miles wide and an inch deep. Do you have anything that people need? the superficiality of the church. It's time we stopped and took a look at who we are in Christ and what our reputation is. I came across an article and I, I thought it was very interesting. It was written by a gentleman by the name of Eugene Peterson. Peterson was a, a former pastor of a Presbyterian church some 29 years and he wrote an article that was included in a, a CT Pastors Magazine, Christianity Today Pastors Magazine, and, and Part of the article had a, a large heading that read, Narcissus Goes to Church. It intrigued me. So I read that portion. I read the whole article. It was quite lengthy, but I read that portion uh, paying much attention. And basically, this is what he was saying. If you'll allow me to condense it a little bit for you, he basically said the mythological uh, character known as Narcissus, he, uh, he uh, fell in love as he was walking by uh, a pool. He fell in love with his own image. And he stood there in such admiration of himself that he grew smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker until finally he died on a diet of self. Peterson referred to it as suicide by selfism. We live in a day and age when we think church is all about us. He used that example in that portion of his writing to say that what we have today is a movement that could be called the spirituality of me. We've taken a little bit of the New Age movement which emphasizes spiritual or spirituality and we've taken a little bit of this and a little bit of that and we've mingled it all together and we've said that what really matters is not what the Word of God teaches. It's not what God wants as far as the church is concerned. It's all about what we want. It's all about 
us being more spiritual. So we have people actually doing stuff like abandoning their spouses and abandoning the church and abandoning what the Word of God says we ought to be paying attention to, all in an effort to be somehow more spiritual. Churches are dying and people are dying spiritually by committing suicide by selfism. It's all about us. We're not careful. We begin to cater to this. We tell people we have everything you want. Now I'm going to make a statement to you and I want you to listen carefully to it. We may not have everything at East Point that you want. We may not. But I'll guarantee you we have everything you need. Are you hearing me? Because sometimes what we want is not really what we need. And we forget. We get it all out of focus. And we, we, we don't pay attention to this. And, and there's division that sometimes sets in in a church when the Bible says that the body of Christ should be unified. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 3, uh, the Bible says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me share something with you that I recently heard. Dr. Adrian Rogers who has gone on, of course, to be with the Lord, powerful preacher. Um, he was preaching one of his last messages to his church, uh, Bellevue Baptist, and, and he used this as an illustration. He had actually told the church that earlier he had taken a survey among them, and he described the survey this way. He said, I asked you at one point, you may recall, how many of you love liver and onions? He said about a third of you raised your hands. He said, then I asked you, how many of you absolutely despise liver and onions? He said, about a third of you raised your hands. And then I said, now how many of you will eat them on occasion? It's not something you love, but you'll eat them. He said, about a third of you raised your hands. And then he made this statement. He said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a divided church. But we are not divided on Jesus we're divided on tastes. What tends to divide the modern day church? What tends to divide the modern taste? Is it not tastes? Is it not little things? Do we not get all upset about certain things? And usually it has something to do with our personal preference. So the reputation of the church tends to be more of what I think, more of what you think, more of what other people think, instead of what Jesus thinks. His opinion is the one that matters. We, we, we go back for a moment in our minds. We did this in a study not long ago, so I hate to go back and read all of it, but in Revelation chapter 1, we find Jesus walking in and out of the candlesticks. Do you remember that? And, and those candlesticks represent the churches, the seven churches that, that John is writing to that, that Jesus wants to send a message to. And the Bible tells us that Jesus has an opinion. He's assessing every church. And so I ask you today, ladies and gentlemen, if he were to look at us, would he say, well done, or would he say as he did to the church of Laodicea, you nauseate me. What is the primary responsibility of the church to bring glory to God? 
Ephesians 3 verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me deal with a third point in our message today with you. And some of you may be wondering, uh, we have several in our church that are uh, ministry oriented. Some have been to seminary and you might be thinking in terms of, Pastor, this is a message on the church. Are you going to deal with the officers of the church and the ordinances of the church and the origin of the church? I'm not. And you probably have determined by now that I'm not. Uh, I may mention some of those things, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that I have to leave out in this short period of time that I have with you. But I do want to deal with this point very important that is the reliance upon Christ our our reliance upon Christ the truth of the matter is too many churches are doing church too many people are ministering out of the flesh and not out of the spirit Jesus said things like this in Luke chapter 24 and verse number 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, look, I'm going to go away, but when I go away, I'm going to tell the Father, Father, you've got to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to empower you, and you're going to be able then to do the ministry that I've called you to do. So wait here, tarry here, till you have the power of the Holy Spirit. What some of us ought to be doing is begging God before we ever get in front of the class we teach, before we ever make the phone call we're about to make, before we ever come in to worship, God, don't let me do it without you. Without you. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, but you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. We've got to get back to the time when we're just relying on God. Some of us will not serve. Some of us sit here and and, and we don't serve. Now, I know we have a large amount of people who do, and I thank God for that. But for those of you that have not yet made that decision, some of you are probably thinking this, you know, I just can't do it. You're the perfect candidate. You say, what do you mean? I'm saying you're the person who would say, I have to rely on God to do this. I have to rely on God. If I am going to get involved, if I am going to do that, I've got to have God show me how. He's got to give me the strength how. Now, God can use that and will use that in a mighty way. You say, preacher, you sound like you expect everybody in the church to be plugged in. That's right. That's exactly right. it is that'll work that'll work now the church has a five-fold purpose some of you have heard this from me before but I want to reiterate it with you if you would for just a few moments I want to spend a little time on it it is not five purposes it is one purpose but it has five different aspects of it let me give them to you many of you again have heard these but let me give them write them down number one the church is to exalt the savior Number two, we are to evangelize the sinner. Number three, we're to educate the saved. Number four, we're to encourage the saints. And number five, we are to equip people for service. Now, here's what happens sometimes in churches. Sometimes we get a little lopsided. Sometimes we keep one of those fires hot and let all the others cool down. For instance, maybe you've been a part of a church before that was uh, very evangelistic. Every message was on evangelism. Every message was how to be saved. 
And some of you are sitting there and every now and then on a Sunday morning, quite honestly, everybody in the congregation has already trusted Christ. So you leave with a great message about how you could have trusted Christ if you needed it. Amen? So I do think sometimes, then there's another group that they tend to focus just on praise. Let's just exalt Jesus now, and, and we just focus on praise. And we ought to be praising. We ought to be doing all of these things, but sometimes we get it all out of, out of kilter here, and we don't understand that we're supposed to be involved in all of these things, not just one or two of them. Obviously, we exalt the Lord in our testimonies and in our songs, and to evangelize the sinner, this is important. I came across this statement by Chuck Missler. I don't know how many of you ever read or study him, but uh, he had an interesting point. He intrigued me because he talked about evangelism in the modern church. And he said this. He said, I think we've got it all wrong. So I listened closer to what he had to say. And then he asked this question. He said, if the book of Acts is the model for the church, are we following that? And then he said, do you know how many times the word love is used in the book of Acts? Because, let's face it, we tend to think that's what we do today. That's how we win people. We just love them. Now, I know we ought to love, and I'm not diminishing that. We should love God, and we should love each other. There's no question. But he drew this conclusion. He said, do you know that the word appears zero times in the book of Acts? And he made this statement. What seems to be missing in our evangelistic effort is the calling of people to accountability before God. People are not going to get saved if they don't realize they're lost and they're accountable before God. Now, I'm not saying that you cannot do it in a manner that is loving, because you can. You can. But somewhere there needs to be a call of accountability. Somewhere there needs to be an understanding that God is a holy God. And he sent his son to die on the cross. Matthew 28 and verse 19, go and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe things, observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe all things. That's the education of the saved. Now, we have something here called ABF. Now, for, if you're a guest here today, you, you might have no clue what that was. I remember when I first became pastor here, a little bit before I was talking with the pastor search team, and they kept talking about ABF, ABF, ABF. And I thought, what in the world? I finally asked them, what in the world is ABF? I don't know what that is. Well, it stands for Adult Bible Fellowship. We used to call it Sunday school, or you can call it small groups, or you can call it life group. You can call it whatever you want to call it. Just get in it. <laughs> Amen? You say, why are you saying? Did you know that our ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship, did you know we have a five-year plan and that the curriculum is designed to take you completely through the Word of God in five years? That if you would apply yourself to the study and apply yourself to get involved and as part of the body of Christ, jump in and begin to study and pick apart the Word of God, then in five years you would know so much more about the Word of God than you know now. Educate the saved. Encourage the saints. I think our church is fantastic at this, by the way. There's so many things you guys are awesome at. 
You really are. And, I, and I'm so thrilled to be a part. We're not perfect. We understand that. But, but man, what I'm saying is, let's just keep all of them in mind. Equipped for service. And, and somebody somewhere needs to step up and say, you know something? I, I just think God wants to use me in this area. I want to get involved. And this happens all the time at our church. And I hope today, maybe it's your day, to step out in the valley of Elah and say, I'm going to take on the giant. And in the power of God, I'm going to do this thing. Revival starts in the heart, in the heart of the individual. Last of all, and I want to close with this thought, our readiness for Christ. That's the fourth, the fourth and final point that I want to make with you today or address with you today, our readiness for Christ. Now, we know that Jesus is coming. Can I get an uh-huh? We know he's coming. In John chapter 14, we have a passage of scripture that is uh, probably familiar to most of us. But what you may not know is, it actually is a wedding imagery. It has a wedding imagery to it. Let me read it to you and, and uh, explain it further. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now what you need to understand about the culture in Jesus' day was this. That the bridegroom would enter into a, 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 a betrothed relationship, a covenant relationship, and then he would go away for an undesignated period of time. And while he was away, many times he would go to his father's estate, his father's house, and he would make an addition onto the house. And there he would prepare to bring his bride to his father's house. And so what Jesus was saying was this, you need to understand that you are my bride and I'm going to come back for you and I've prepared a place for you and that place is unlike any other place and, and the eye has never seen and the ear has never heard and it's never even entered into the heart of man the things that I've prepared for you but I'm going to come and get you and I'm going to bring you back to this place. And then we have another story, a parable following the same imagery Matthew chapter 25, the Bible describes for us that there is this wedding party that has gathered. There are ten virgins, the Bible says, five are wise and five are foolish. And we read of them in Matthew chapter 25 and verse number five, the Bible says, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. You know the story, many of you do. They all woke up, they were, uh, they were all sleeping. And here we see a picture of what some say is the modern realm of Christianity, that we're asleep, slumbering. And Jesus is on his way. We're not ready. We're not ready. Those who woke up and had the oil, which I believe is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, they were ready and they went in with the bridegroom. Others were not ready. And if you're here today and you've not asked Jesus to be your Savior, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, He's coming. I don't know when He's coming, but He's coming. And time is going to run out. 
And for the rest of us, notice the state of the church. Some have said there are a couple of unique characteristics about sleeping. One is that you do not know it when you're asleep. You ever fallen asleep just and then woke up and thought, my goodness, was I asleep? (laughs) The second thing that I've heard about this is that being awakened suddenly is not pleasant. There's perhaps no sound more detestable than that of an alarm. (laughs) Amen? And sometimes in a church service, the Holy Spirit is shaking you, saying to you, wake up. Church, wake up. Do you understand that we have an opportunity before us that no other church age has had? Do you know there are millions of people all around us, literally, that simply have never been in church? And we have an opportunity to tell them what it's really like, not what they think it's like, but what it really could be like. And that they could come to know Christ and become part of the believer's community and and grow in their relationship with God. And do, do you understand? You could teach them how to love the things that Jesus loves. But sometimes we're nice and cozy and like we were this morning, 62 degrees in the house and you were underneath all those blankets. And you were thinking, man, I really don't want to go to church today, but Michael Inglis is going to be there. I got to go. <laughs> I don't want to miss him, man. I don't want to miss church. I just, I just really would rather just take the whole bed and just, you know, just. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? We build a new auditorium. We'll have like just beds and blankets. <laughs> Recliners. Some of you want remotes so you can change the channel, I know, but <laughs> not going to work. Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul said this, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. It's a little unusual. I don't do it very often. But in this invitation time, I'm going to ask you, if you're willing, to gather around the altar. Now, soon that altar will fill up and you'll be back into the third, fourth row, maybe. I don't know. But I'm going to ask you to join me in a time of prayer for revival. Genuine, Holy Ghost-led revival. In our hearts first, What happens in us will become part of us. Revival doesn't come to a church corporately before it comes to the individuals who are the church. And so I ask you, will you step into the valley of Eli and change the rest of your life like David did? Will you pivot on this point of asking God for revival? And have a different view, a a, a greater appreciation, a love, a passion for the church like Jesus has. If you do not feel led to come, no one's going to judge you. Perhaps you'll pray right where you stand or right where you sit and that's fine. But for those who are willing, I'm going to ask you to come even now and join me. I'll lead us in that prayer. So may God bless you as you come, or as you stay where you are, that's fine, but you come. Let's pray for revival.